is Bond. James Bond. Japanese proverbs say, bird never make nest in bear tree. Just a slight stiffness coming on. Your cellos are study values. I'm just up here at Oxford, brushing up on a little Danish. You know what I can do with my little finger. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to Roger Moore's Cubbyhole, episode number 12. This is the podcast in which we take an occasionally laconic, occasionally loquacious, but always lucid look at the legendary lifestyle of the lovable Lothario, James Bond 007. We are now halfway through our reviews of the official James Bond films, 12 out of the 24 with this episode, so we hope you've been enjoying them so far. Or if you're new to the cubbyhole, we hope you'll be with us from here on out. We're doing the reviews in chronological order, but you are, of course, free to go back and listen to them in whichever order you please. We really do appreciate your company here in the cubbyhole. We're tentatively labeling you, our listenership, as the cubbies, and we'd love to get to know the cubbies a little bit more on social media, so do give us a like and follow Facebook and Instagram, you can find us by searching our name, Roger Moore's Cubbyhole, or over on Twitter, our handle is More Cubby. We also have a Q branch, i.e. questions branch segment at the end of each episode, where we answer your Bond queries and questions, uh, or you can just reprimand us for any of the glaring mistakes or omissions from our previous episodes if you prefer. So do get your correspondence to us via social media channels or via email, Roger Moore's Cubbyhole, at gmail.com. Now, in our previous episode, we examined Bond in Space, otherwise known as Bond number 11, Moonraker, uh, in which there was no moon or indeed raking of any kind. Uh, it was, however, a big budget film that stretched Bond's talents and his believability, but we're back down to earth with Bond number 12 for your eyes only. So with me to discuss this not-so-secret mission, it's the usual hosting team, Firstly, it's the man who has what the Greeks call thrasos, and I believe he also has a delicatessen in stainless steel. It's Phil. How are you, Phil? Yes, I'm very good. Thank you, Martin. Um, yes, looking forward to Fear Eyes Only. Um, a little bit more of a more grounded bond this time around after the uh, more fanciful episode of Moonraker last time. Just wanted to really quickly run through the shout-outs from our social media channels. A lot of people have been getting in touch recently. Thank you to everybody for all the kind mentions, follows, messages. On Facebook, thank you to Steve Spring and to Julio Cesar Hurtado. Thank you very much to Kevin Lindley as well, who sent us some brilliant photos of his Bond collection of memorabilia, which look fantastic. We'll try and post a few of those on Twitter, at More007, please at uh, Retro George, at Not Perfected Yet, Silvio Neuberger, The Double O Files, Joe Larkin, Evan Cognar, Trey Bond, and that guy, Cy. Quick mentions as well just to Calvin Dyson. Thank you very much for the uh, comments on our page as well, and to Kate Hazel for the follow on Twitter. Of course, if there's anyone that we've missed out from this week that's gone by, there's been so many people getting in touch. We do apologise, but if you do want to shout out for the next episode, please do get in touch with us. Just a really quick message as well on Twitter. Um, a really brilliant channel is not perfected yet. They've recently launched a new blog which looks at 
the film The World Is Not Enough. There is a great segment about that which sort of defends Dr. Christmas Jones, the uh, the Bond woman as a character. So that is a really great read if you get a chance to look at that. Support for Dr. Christmas Jones, that would be interesting. I'm not sure I could think of any salient points for that argument. I don't know, maybe there's uh, there's something to be said for the character. I'm not sure what, and she certainly seems to have qualified as a nuclear physicist incredibly quickly, considering her relative youthful age in the world is not enough. Okay, very good. And secondly, it's the man who brings as much energy and zeal to this podcast as a young Charles Dent starring in his first movie. It's Adam. How are you, Adam? I'm very well, thank you. Uh, thanks for bringing up Charles Dance. I always think if you looked up the word dastardly in a dictionary, you'd just get a photo of Charles Dance. That just seems to be his enduring quality. Uh, I'm very well, thank you, Martin. I've been particularly enjoying uh, our Q branch sections in the past couple of episodes, so just another shout to all the cubbies out there to keep sending in things for us to discuss. It doesn't even have to be a question. Uh, it can just be a character or a scene or any kind of subject Bond-related you want us to kind of talk about in a bit more detail. I know a few weeks ago when we were talking Diamonds Are Forever, one of our followers was very upset that we didn't talk more about Klaus Hergesheimer, G-section's finest. I mean, I'm not sure there is anything to say about Klaus Hergesheimer. There's no reason to run down the little people. G-section may not be as important to the operation as you are, but uh, well, we do have our orders. That's mentioned, Adam, actually. It's quite an interesting point with Klaus Hergesheimer. Apparently, it was Guy Hamilton's approach to actually naming people that he'd forgotten the names of. So anybody in his films that he was directing, they're basically classed as Hergesheimers. Um, and Tom Mankiewicz, the uh, the screenwriter, found it so amusing that he put a character in in his honour. So that's that's where that all stems from. I, I didn't know that. There you go. I stand corrected. There are interesting things to say even about Klaus Hergesheimer. So, like we say, literally anything you want us to chat more about, we we will have something good to say on it. I mean, personally, I'm happy we've uh, we've got past the axis of Elvis, the Hamilton Mankiewicz uh, axis of Elvis. Yeah. What do you what do you reckon would have would have happened had they actually just gone all in and got Elvis Presley to uh, to play James Bond in Diamonds Are Forever? I, th I think it was between his initial sort of fame and his uh, Fat Man comeback period. So th that that'd have been interesting. He wouldn't have looked much worse than Connery at that point. I'm I'm not really sure how he'd have uh, how he'd pulled pulled off the suave element of Bond. I think he would have been quite brash. My name's uh, James Bond, double or some. Where's the nurse cheeseburger? Okay, so uh, let's get started with this episode. So it's over to Adam and Alan for the film synopsis. Thank you very much, Martin. So for your eyes only, the 12th James Bond film, taking its title from the 8th James Bond book, the first of two collections of short stories written by Ian Fleming. John Glenn steps into the director's chair. This will be the first of five consecutive films directed by Glenn. That's every Bond film in the 80s. He was previously the second unit director and the editor of The Spy Who Loved Me and Moonraker, and prior to that on Her Majesty's Secret Service. Roger Moore is back. This is James Bond number five for him. And Richard Maybaum, who scripted most of the early Bond films, returns to write the screenplay, collaborating with Michael G. Wilson, now, of course, one of the two main producers of the series. The film was released in June 1981, so still a full seven years before Pierce Brosnan's breakout film performance in the action classic Tappin. Then maybe you shouldn't be living here! Incidentally, For Your Eyes Only is also the last James Bond film to be released solely by United Artists. After this film, it's purchased by Metro-Goldwyn-Mayer, who then released all the subsequent films. That's after United Artists went bankrupt following the uh, box office disaster 
of Michael Cimino's Heaven's Gate. Fiori's only is made for $28 million uh, and goes on to gross $195 million. So we've slipped a little bit from the heady heights of Moonraker, but still a massive financial success. And it's a film that has been critically reappraised in the intervening years. It was received rather lukewarmly originally, but is now regarded as one of the better of the Roger Moore films, if not the series in general. And so to learn what is or isn't good about it, here's Alan Partridge. Shuffling down the gun barrel, it's Roger Moore. Bang! Blood dribbles down. Bond pays his respects to Dame Diana Rigg, then gets trapped in a chopper hijacked by bloody blowers. Bond regains control, scoops blowers up, and, after some bizarre bargaining, I'll buy you a delicatessen in stainless steel. Uses blowers as a human chimney sweep. Mr. Moore! the title starring Miss Sheila Easton. In Greece, the world's most high-tech fishing boat sinks and two posh Brits get machine-gunned by a chopper. Bond goes to a nearby 80s pool party to investigate, but the chopper pilot gets a crossbow from Vendeldor to Molina, and after she and Bond escape driving Mr Bean's car down a steep hill, he tells her to back off. When setting out for revenge, you must first dig two graves. Bond uses Q's Guess Who machine to identify Locke as the pilot's employer. And in Cortina, ruggedly handsome Greek's war vet, Christatos, gives him some lovely glue vine. After getting sexually harassed by figure skating Barbie, you put your clothes on and I'll buy you an ice cream. Bond single-handedly smashes the entire Winter Olympics, beating an entire ice hockey team and a young Charles dance down a ski jump. Back in Greece, Christatos tells Bond that Locke works for dangerous local smuggler, Colombo. You may have to kill him. Does this discourage you? Bond seduces a random scouse bird pretending to be a European countess, but she's killed in a dawn beach stroll after a go on Bond's magic penis. Ultra-charming pistachio muncher Columbo tells Bond that Christatos is the real bloody villain, and Bond believes him because he's just so charming. You have what the Greeks call thrasos, guts. Together they blow up a dockyard, and Bond pushes Locke over a cliff for forcing him to run up ten flights of stairs. Bond hooks up with Molina again to retrieve some computer thing from the sunken fishing boat, blowing up a Doctor Who robot in the process. But Christatos captures them, and Bond gets some serious back-scratchers saving them both from mega-shark death. Q dresses up as a monk. Forgive me, father, for I have sinned. That's putting it mildly, 007. Then Bond, Molina and Columbo free solo it up to a monastery, where after an old man fight, Columbo ninja knifes Christatos, and Bond chucks the computer thing off the mountain to stop the bloody Ruskies getting it. Bond and Molina celebrate with a skinny dip, while the parrots chats to Maggie Thatcher. Give us a kiss, give us a kiss. Oh, really, Mr. Bond? <laughs> the end. <laughs> Thank you very much, Adam and Alan. Excellent Maggie Thatcher impression at the end as well. I forgot uh, when we started this podcast, I forgot that that was coming. Lovely stuff. Uh, so uh, this one, for your eyes only, kind of an interesting move away from sci-fi in this film, but still very much influenced by some of the sci-fi actors of the time. Of course, we get uh, Kaim Topol, Dr. Hans Zarkov from Flash Gordon. Not the last time we'll be talking about an actor from that film. And we also get some actors who've been in Star Wars. But nonetheless, this one, certainly Roger Moore's grittier, realistic outing as Bond. One of his personal favourites, uh, actually, when he died in accordance with his wishes, uh, this film 
and The Spy Who Loved Me were shown together on some specially selected uh, cinema screenings with the profits going to UNICEF. Uh, so this one, what do we think, Phil? What were your impressions of For Your Eyes Only? Did you enjoy the slightly different tone of this one? Yeah, absolutely. I love this film. It's it's the complete antithesis of, of Moonraker that we saw previously. It's much more grounded, much more back to basics, really. You can tell it's a, a new director as well. Obviously, John Glenn was given the, um, the trust of being able to progress the franchise into the 80s. And there are still a few little quirky moments in it. And there's a few sort of silly moments. That obviously, the, the beginning and the very end are kind of bookends of of what makes a great film, also they are quite silly. But no, I, I just love this film, just the whole way it's put together, particularly because of the fact, and then we'll probably get onto this, but also the fact that it kind of, it's kind of the first one that subverts the kind of the audience's expectations of the villain, not just because of the fact that Christatos isn't this kind of billionaire tycoon, but also because of the fact that we're initially led to believe that Christatos is the, you know, the kind of the good guy, and that Columbo is obviously the villain. So it's quite a, a clever sort of twist in that sense as well, which we haven't necessarily seen in the previous films. Yeah, I've been a champion of um, For Your Eyes Only and Octopussy specifically for quite a long time. I see them as, I guess, the autumnal Bond films in a way. I think the late period Roger Moore movies are all quite unfairly banded together, largely um, off of the, the rather less good of You to a Kill. But these, I think there's a real attempt on the part of the filmmaker to actually lean into Roger Moore's advanced age and use it to power a very different style of Bond film, something that's much more stripped back, that steps away from the big sense of the epic uh, light entertainment romps that we had with Spy Who Loved Me and Moonraker, but also to embrace not just a more serious tone, but also a more melancholic tone. You get the sense that it's showing a slightly past prime slightly more underused, slightly less valued secret agent who, who isn't seen as like the number one choice for a mission anymore, but is still out there doing the job. And of course, the other reason I love it is that the Cold War comes back as a, you know, a palpable um, driving force behind the story, just as it had been in the earlier Connery films. And that, of course, supports bringing Richard Maybaum back to write the screenplay. They're attempting very deliberately to, to go away from the epic, which they, in a sense, perfected in the previous two films and done as much with as they can and actually do something that's much more story and character driven in the vein of the earlier films. Yeah, I noticed there was lots of echoes of previous Bond films and some of the better Bond films in the series. So we get, uh, we get a beach scene where he's wearing exactly the same shirt as he is in On Her Majesty's. Um, and we also get the attack system, very similar to the Lector that we get in From Russia With Love. So uh, what do we... Rec I, I think those scenes work quite well, uh, but I think that's one of the reasons why I'd, I'm... I mean, I'm quite keen on this film, but I don't think it's amazing. Uh, and I think that's one of the reasons is that it's kind of copying previous well-trodden formulas that they know work but for me that's why it's not quite as good because those scenes whilst decent are not as effective as the originals. Well I, I like to think that you know obviously going back to Moonraker I think that they tried to be so outlandish with that the only way that they really could go was to kind of tie it down again a little bit and sort of take it back to basics again. They could use perhaps some of the cliches from the previous films but use them to good effect. I think they are done very well. They're not sort of clunky or, you know, chintzy sort of reflections back to past films. So I think that we we should give uh, John Glenn as a director a lot of credit for the way that it's put together. 
and the fact that Roger Moore was brave enough to come back to, you know, they could have, if you think about it, you know, if it had been Timothy Dalton in an earlier role, it would have been a lot different in terms of feel and tone. There would have been a lot different emphasis in it. I mean, Timothy Dalton could have carried this film off, but I think that Roger Moore still had the gravitas and probably still had the audience approval to be able to, to play this film at this point. Yes, as I've said before, there are silly moments in it. Obviously, the opening scenes where Blofeld gets launched down a giant chimney is ridiculous. And the scene at the end where Margaret Thatcher, or a fake Margaret Thatcher, is talking to a parrot is also ridiculous. But I think there is still a warmth and a charm to it that Bond films have, which I think is, is what makes it one of the best of the entire series. Having to tie both of your points together, what I'd say is that um, Bond is always, to an extent, remaking itself. I mean, it's why those early Connery ones are so beloved and stand out so much, because they are the true originals of the series. And certainly those first five or six are pretty much all the ones which at various points come back and are used as benchmarks. But there is, and, and I do agree, this film is not perfect. It's still laced with the sort of the, the sillier side of Roger Moore's humour to an extent that just doesn't gel with the more serious tone of this one. Um, particularly, I guess, thinking about the ice hockey rink fight when every time he knocks a henchman into the goal, it gives him a point. Uh, and the other side of it is that certain sequences are quite clunky in terms of the action. But again, I think what I really like about this is that John Glenn does something quite clever with reinventing these moments, which is that he presents them with more edginess than they've been given previously. In this one, he's a bit hampered by the fact that he has to tailor it to, you know, Roger Moore's advancing years. But you sense he's building up to what he eventually does with the two Dalton films. It is actually a much more violent film that we've seen this one. I mean, to talk about that beach sequence, which calls on a Majesty's Secret Service, you know, in this instance, the murder of Countess Liesel is really brutal and shocking. Like, you know, she goes off the hood of that car with a real crack. It's a really tough sequence. So I think you're right that there is an element to which this is riffing on the better bits of much earlier films and deliberately doing so, but is doing so in such a way that at least reinvents them for a very different style and a different era. As we've sort of mentioned it, shall we talk a little bit about that opening sequence? Um, very much, of course, in context, a shot across the bows at Never Say Never Again, which is crewing up at this moment, and they know that Connery is is sort of negotiating a return to the role. And, of course, Kevin McClory, who owns the rights to Thunderball, also contested the rights to Blofeld and Spectre, which is why he's not named specifically in this opening sequence, even though it is clearly him. But what do we think of that? Because, of course, we also get the fact that we start on Roger Moore as Bond visiting the grave of Tracy, uh, who, of course, is killed in On a Majesty's Secret Service. For me, it grounds the whole film in an emotion and a seriousness that was missing, perhaps, from the previous two films, or, or certainly wasn't as pronounced in them. I personally think it's a really, really point, because, again, it's it kind of links back to the, um, the Spy Who Loved Me as well, where, obviously, Anya and Bond are in the bar, and he mentions that he was married previously, so, obviously, Anya already knows that about him. And it's kind of, again, it is a really poignant callback to, to the previous films. Interestingly as well, the grave, the, well, the cemetery where they filmed that sequence is just across the road from the golf course that they filmed for Goldfinger. But no, I think the way that it builds that opening sequence, obviously it's a very, very, it's not a huge amount of music in it. There's not a huge amount of, you know, background noise to it. It's very much a very slow and gradual build-up. And I think that kind of sets the tone for the film in many respects because this, this feels much more suspenseful 
you're not really expecting there to be problems when Bond gets into the helicopter. It's kind of it becomes a surprise to the audience until you see obviously Blofeld in the background and he then starts to control the helicopter. So I think it does set the film up in, in a really good way, I think. Yeah, I quite like the callback that we get from the, the graveyard scene. Uh, and actually, Phil, we do know that there might be something bad happening when the, the priest starts doing his little little cross. But then again, I'd say that it's probably ruined by the whole man in wheelchair scene. Although it does link back to our previous theories that the real Blofeld is possibly the cat. And the cat does disappear completely from the scene and isn't thrown into the... Uh, <laughs> into the chimney so Blofeld is still alive just in cat form well well yeah I mean Blofeld has to survive because he's going to go off and do never say never again with yet another fake Blofeld if you follow not the cat theory but my theory of the many Blofelds uh, I do like that opening sequence for the reasons I've said but I do agree there is it, it does in another way illustrate the problem with this film which is that humor is still laced through it and that camp Roger Moore ridiculous humor still sort of rears its ugly head kind of when you don't want it to in this one at times. I mean, that whole Blofeld banging on the window saying, I'll buy you a delicatessen in stainless steel. Has Bond just always really wanted one? Is it in his file? Is there a bit at the end of his biography, which is like, can be tempted to the dark side by offers of stainless steel cutlery? Maybe before he was a secret service agent, it was just a presenter like a really naff game show where all he used to win was stainless steel uh, dinner sets and you could only delicatessen for a year or something like that. But yeah, going back to the uh, the Blofeld cat theory, do you think it was because Blofeld just keeps getting reincarnated as a cat? Well, cats famously have nine lives. Have we seen the demise of nine Blofelds yet? Maybe that's what explains it. This is actually only Blofeld number six and Volts. Christoph Voss is number seven, so we can have another two Blofelds before the cat has to bite it. I mean, do get in touch with us if you think this fan theory is uh, is viable. I mean, do please let us know on the social media channels because this this could be the uh, the key to unlocking the Blofeld secret. Or if you prefer, send us a decent question. Uh, the uh, <laughs> apparently, I think the pre-title sequence was supposed to be the death of Melina's parents. And I think that that would have worked a lot better, wouldn't it? We get Bond, he'll pay his respects to his beloved one, and then we get Melina losing her parents. I think that would have worked a lot better. Uh, whereas what we get is Cubby's bitter feud with McClurry coming out at the beginning and kind of souring the film. But I, I understand why they did it, because then when Never Say Never Again comes out, the entire film is laced with bitterness towards the Eon production of Bond. So uh, I, I get where it's coming from, but it kind of ruins the, uh, the start of this film, at least. Yeah, I didn't know that, that uh, the murder of the Havelocks, which, as we've said, is, is a very violent and shocking moment. Uh, I didn't know that that was originally going to be the pre-titles, which, if you think about it, coming after the big ski jump in Spy and the big skydiving sequence in Moonraker, what a statement of intent that would have been. We're just going to show a really violent machine gun murder. Uh, perhaps that brings us nicely on to Melina Havelock uh, herself. We're introduced to her in a seemingly carefree way, and the, the very same sequence ends with her cradling her parents' bodies and from John Glenn, an extreme close-up into those vengeful green Greek Electra eyes. What did we make of her? Yeah, I think Carol Bouquet as um, Melina is a brilliant performance in this film. I think she she delivers that sort of vengeful character portrayal very, very well. And it's it's a credit to her for, for the way that it's portrayed. I also think she has quite a good sort of one-to-one -one relationship with Roger Moore's Bond as well. You know, the fact that 
they're both on the same mission per se, but for very different reasons. Obviously, Bond is very clear in his motivations that he needs to find out where the ATAC's gone. And obviously, Melina is, is solely out for revenge for the person that killed her parents. Obviously, we see that the hitman is eventually killed by her, but obviously, she wants, she wants blood from, you know, the main people. Again, it's going to be another really key revenge plot that's coming in, which kind of became... Not obviously not so much the later films, but more sort of certainly things like License to Kill. John Glenn kind of perfected that in License to Kill as well. You know, it's kind of that was the ultimate revenge plot for Bond. But I think this really does set it up brilliantly. And obviously, Melina Havelock is is that kind of archetypal vengeful person that wants to to get revenge on for the death of her parents. Yeah, apparently, uh, Melina is the Greek word for honey, so it calls back to uh, Honey Rider from the the first film, uh, but not particularly like that character. I'd say she's more along the mould of a, a Tilly Masterson. Uh, so I was really pleased to see that that kind of character is fleshed out in this film because we didn't really see much of Tilly in Goldfinger, whereas this time we get a full-on revenge plot of a, of a strong female character. So yeah, I was, I was quite impressed by her performance in this. Yeah, and it's always interesting that Bond women always have an international flavour to them, of course, because Bond's meeting them while he is he's going to far-flung countries across the globe. But this is perhaps the first time, with the exception of um, Major Amasova's Russianness, that we really lean into the culture and the country that the character is coming from. She specifically invokes the spirit of Electra, the daughter of Agamemnon, who helps take revenge upon the mistreatment of her mother, at his hands and so we lean into the actual culture uh, and nationality of the character but you're right she is the angel of vengeance par excellence she is in the finale she kills key people throughout the film from very early on actually from the very second time we see her she's the one who who does avenge her parents by killing the man who pulled the trigger on them interestingly in this film roger moore doesn't jump into bed with the bond women he only really does that with countess liesel and that's only really because he thinks that he can get close to Columbo, who he thinks is the villain at that point. And uh, with Melina specifically, there's a very paternal relationship with her at first, almost taking again his advanced years into account. The fact that he's trying to tell her, desperately trying to tell her, don't pursue revenge because the likelihood is you'll end up dead. And it's only throughout the course of the film as she continues to show actually her intelligence and her resourcefulness that Bond begins to see her not as someone he has to protect, but as someone he can trust and perhaps even develop romantic feelings for yeah i think you're right i think also we should mention that um obviously melina in her own right is very much skilled in what she can do obviously like her father being sort of marine researcher and she obviously fits into that mold as well she's very capable in terms of doing the deep sea diving and being able to recover things as well so obviously when we see it later in the film where they have to go down to the boat to try and recover the atac she very much is a much more developed character from sort of previous films. I mean, even going back to kind of the previous one with Moonraker with Holly Goodhead, I think in this one, Melina has a lot more to do in it. And I think she has a lot more to support Bond as well. You know, obviously they have to try and work together to try and find out what's actually going on. And again, she is quite a deadly person as well because she's the first kind of one that is sort of a femme fatale on Bond's side because she's got the crossbow and she can execute people as and when she needs to. One of my favourite moments was when Bond is kind of uh, going back to what you said, Adam, about him being an almost paternal figure. We get that in the scene where they're in the carriage and Bond is persuading her to retreat while he gathers more information. And I thought that was an excellent, maybe one of Moore's best performances alongside a female character in his tenure as Bond. 
of course, the very next scene is Bibi Dahl, which I'm sure we'll talk about, and that uh, perhaps undercuts it slightly, but uh, but still a good scene nonetheless. Yeah, I'd go further. I'd say I think this is Moore's best performance as Bond. I, I don't think he's his best film. I think that is probably Spy, I'd say. But I just think as a piece of acting, I think he shows much greater range uh, in the role in this film. And that's a great scene. And it's one of the lovelier moments of Bill Conti's score as well. Bill Conti, not John Barry, is scoring this one. And it's not the musically best film, uh, I would say. But that is a lovely scene, just using a very tender evocation of the title song just to underpin the dialogue there. Did you find the man who hired Gonzalez? I'm working on it. He's here, isn't he? That's why you're here. Driver, stop. Go back. Bye, Avanti. I'm staying. Oh, so you can put an arrow in his back? You do that and we'll never find out who or what is behind all this. It was my parents they killed, not yours. Let me out. Driver, stop. Bye, Avanti. Presto. Molina, look at me. You were lucky once, but they are on to you now. The telegram, the motorcycle's back there, they prove it. Now please let me handle this. You? How are you involved? All I can tell you is something of vital interest to both our countries. More important than my parents? Your father was part of it. He thought it important enough to risk his life. Now, Molina, please trust me. Go back to the Triana and wait. Let me find out what I can here, then I'll come straight to Corfu, I promise you. Okay, I'll go back and wait, but not for long. It won't be, I swear. Amore, amore. We might as well move on to B because again, it proves the point of for everything good that this film does in being a bit more serious and melancholic, it is laced with ridiculousness. I mean, the actual scene of, of BB, you know, going into Bond's room and waiting for him, I actually think is handled reasonably well. It's completely cringe-inducing, but it's meant to be. Like, it's right that it is played that way. Because, again, it shows Bond with an awareness of his, of his advanced age. He's not just going to jump into bed with this presumably, you know, teenage figure skater who is really a bit of a ditzy bimbo. I mean, I mean you know, we, we, we try and give credit to Bond women you know, when due, but the writers did not give that character anything to work with whatsoever. And she is a character who's completely incidental to the plot as well. I mean, I'm not sure at any point whether she contributes anything major to the story. It seems like she's purely there for that scene when specifically Bond rejects uh, having sex with her, which is, I think, the first time we've really seen that. So she's kind of only there to make a point about Bond's age in this film. Uh, I don't know, is, is there any merit to her? You know, is that scene just too cringe to really be forgiven? I'd have to say, in a word, no. There is, there's no kind of benefit to having B.B. Dahl in the entire film. Not, not because, you know, uh, I can't remember the actual name. But of you're the gonna say, so I thought you were going to say, no, it's not cringy. <laughs> no, it's definitely cringy. You know, I'm, I'm agreeing with Adam in that sense. I'm also saying that there's no point to B.B. Dahl as a character because she really doesn't really do anything at all, apart from the fact of getting in the way half the time because obviously Bond is trying to investigate where the ATAC's gone, and then Chris Artis is also getting him off the trail by lumbering him with BB to go and watch the biathlon. 
The character would be more interesting, picking up on something you said there, Phil, if Christatos were much more deliberately and overtly pimping her out to Bond almost in order to put him in a dangerous position to then, you know, have him killed. But that's not what's going on. One of the few moments of strength the character does, to be fair to her and, and Lynn Holly Johnson's portrayal of her have, is later when they're at the monastery and she's overtly rejecting Christatos, both his money and what he can do for her career because he's he's keeping her as this kept woman almost and a plaything, but also rejects his advances and that sense she has that he is just interested in her body and has been lecherous towards her. I'm confused that she rejects Christatos. The actor is eight years younger than Roger Moore at the time, so it doesn't make any sense. Completely pointless character. And uh, yeah, although I do agree with you, Adam, that it would have been as cringeworthy as that scene is, it would have been even more cringy if it wasn't played with some self-awareness. If perhaps if Bond had have gone to bed with her, that would have been even worse. So at least they, they knew what, kind of what they were doing. Shall we, as we're on Christatos, shall we move on to the villain or, or rather the non-villain? It's interesting talking about that uh, sexual dimension between him and uh, Bibi Dahl because Julian Glover, the actor who plays Christatos, had at one point been considered for Bond. He was in the running presumably when Roger Moore took on the role. And this, I think, like Scaramanga and to a lesser extent like Emilio Largo, is a character played as being the darker side of Bond. It's someone who has a history of conflict. Uh, but he does have that sort of charm and he has a sort of ruggedly handsome charisma to him. And of course, when he sits down with Bond at the casino later in the film, when he's trying to pit Bond against Columbo, he's also a gourmet and he also knows his way around wines as well. And so he's kind of engaging Bond on a similar level and of course he's admiring him at the uh, the casino tables but do we sort of also think the fact that he's not revealed as the villain until much later in the film does that perhaps also hamstring the character and the performance in a way what did we think um, i don't think it hamstrings him i think it's again it goes back to john glenn's directorship i think it's a very very clever way that he's presented because obviously the audience isn't led to believe there's anything sinister about Christatus in the early stages. Obviously, Ferrara introduces Bond to Christatus, and obviously he's, he seems very charming, very helpful. It's very, very cleverly put together, and I think that, um, you know, Christatus as a character is very deceptive and very believable as a character that could have perhaps existed. And I think that it is very played played very well in in the sense that um, you know, Columbo is seen as the villain initially and then obviously the twist comes that it's been Christatus all along. Yeah, I quite like that it's different to the previous films where we've had one main villain uh, and then this time we're not sure who the villain is and Bond has to go from henchman to henchman finding out the real bad guy. So I, I quite like that there was a different feel to this film. Um and I think that uh who is the, who's the main baddie who he's chasing? Is it Locke? I think he does quite well, even though he doesn't have any lines, maybe similar to Jaws, but actually gives quite a good physical performance. Although interesting that he's able to be identified by that ridiculous identograph. I don't know if you'll be talking about that later, Phil. Uh, incredible that Q just writes the description. and that, I mean, it's lucky that he's wearing octagonal glasses, I suppose. That's how they got him. Well, Q very much becomes the comic relief in this film very specifically because there are so few gadgets in it. It is also an incident, that scene of Bond doing some actual spy work in this film. That makes a change. He's, you know, he's very key to cover his identity at first to Molina and Christatos, who, of course, thinks later that he's, he's just part of the British drug police on an international operation. He doesn't know he's a secret agent. And there's a sense that that identograph scene takes a lot longer than it seems to. You know, they've brought in a mug of tea. 
and and you know the Q says he'll lock up. I mean, it seems like the middle of the day when Bond goes in, so presumably they've been there maybe hours. Uh, and of course, Bond also files a report. When have we ever seen him do that? He, he goes back to the office after the 80s pool party and he has to actually write everything up. I mean, this is fantastic. He even knows what he's written on each paragraph. I thought we needed to see more of Sharon, the tea lady. She can't have just been the tea lady. She must work at some other capacity at, at Q-Branch. It must be absolutely awful being the tea lady in Q-Branch, though, because you'd not be able to prepare anything without wondering if it were going to bite your hand off or explode in your face. You're like getting a milk bottle from the fridge. But like, oh, what happens to it? And then later we see exploding milk bottles in the living daylights. And don't put the tea on yeah. the tea tray. If you get the wrong tea tray, it'll take someone's head off. Yeah, I've just got visions of these multiple employment tribunals where Q and uh, M have just got to wander into this uh, office space and just face an employee with like an arm missing or something like that and just say, what was the meaning of this? Shall we return to Locke, actually, and uh, to the death of Locke specifically? I certainly second what Martin said about the performance of the role, just that very almost glacial face, which is unchanging in, in emotion and, and blank of emotion in a sense. Um, but the, the moment I always remember about Locke is his demise. And this is a scene that gave Roger Moore a lot of difficulty in the filming. He felt this was way too much like Sean Connery's portrayal of Bond and not the sort of thing a Roger Moore Bond would do killing in cold blood, although he didn't seem to mind shoving Sandor off that roof in Cairo. Pyramids! But, but anyway, it's a, it's a scene that Moore wanted the screenwriters to change and find a different resolution to, but ultimately did play the scene as filmed. What do we think of it? Because I think it, it might be Moore's finest hour. Yeah, I'd agree, Adam. I think it is superb in the way that it's put together and the way that it's um, filmed. And also because of the fact of, you know, Locke is deemed this ruthless killer so it's it's kind of on a par with the way that he would probably kill someone so you know it's then again i can see why roger moore would have been uncertain about uh, f filming it in that manner but i think it reflects on the the tone that's already been set in it you know obviously bond has to be ruthless to to kill him in that sense and he has to just um you know obviously push the car over the edge so i, I don't think that it detracts from Roger Moore's performance. I think, if anything, it, it builds on it. And it, as you say, Adam, it's probably one of his best moments in the film. Yeah, perhaps Roger was more of a follower of those Chinese sayings of digging two graves than Because uh, I'm not sure Bond, at that stage, Locke has killed many people. And uh, I think he completely deserves a horrible death. So I'm not sure why Rog was... Uh, was so unhappy with that scene uh, but I really liked how it played out as well on like teetering over the edge the car and then Bond just flicks the little dove pin uh, into the car to eventually or I guess that doesn't topple it over he has to actively kick it down but uh, yeah I thought a uh, really powerful scene. To be honest Roger Moore's probably more annoyed at the fact he had to run up all those stairs yeah, I was about to say, what I love about the whole thing is the physicality of it, the, the use just of the pin that he took from Ferrara's corpse, um, the fact that it's a big kick, and the fact that the, the fight sequence between them is just gun and car against each other, and that Roger is having to do so much running after it, the fact that he's having to absolutely neck it to try and cut off intelligently the car from getting away. 
shall we go on to i guess the two uh, great suspense sequences which which effectively close out the film uh, the keel hauling sequence and then the mountaineering uh, bond trying to get up to st cyril's and and suddenly being in mortal danger from a henchman having spotted him. Uh, I think these sequences are both absolutely brilliant. And again, because they're not played as spectacular action sequences, um, it, it's possible to see the finale as a bit of a damp squib, although I don't quite buy into that. I think, you know, because it's resolving a lot of character arcs when we finally get to the monastery, I think it works. I think those two sequences are filmed brilliantly as the fact that, you know, th there's not really any dialogue at all per se, certainly in the, the monastery climb. And it's, it's brilliantly put together, the fact that there's very little music, very little dialogue, and it's just two men effectively trying to climb up or down the mountain. If you kind of put that on paper, people wouldn't really be able to believe it was so suspenseful. But it's the way it's put together is astonishing, the way that it's, you know, you don't know if Bond is going to make it in time. And obviously then he just manages to get there just before the last sort of landing point is, is knocked out. I mean, I have a couple of issues with those two scenes in that the, uh, the shark scene, one of the goons falls into the water and is immediately set upon by the sharks, whereas uh, Bond and Melina are bleeding profusely and uh, the sharks are nowhere near them. And then on the mountain... Uh, the the height of the mountains seems to like vary dramatically from shot to shot. But apart from those two points, which are pedantic, I'll admit, uh, I think they were quite well shot and uh, quite suspenseful as well for the uh, the audience. So yeah, I'd agree. It's not a massive, spectacular ending, but I think those two scenes are quite impressive. Uh, yeah, with the mountaineering scene, there is an element of what we were talking about last week with the cable car uh, scene in Rio de Janeiro in that it's a scene that requires a lot of close-ups of Roger Moore who of course is not really up at that height doing that stunt. And so there's a little bit of, of having to kind of cut around the real death-defying stunt work and Roger Moore presumably quite close to the ground uh, in Pinewood Studios. But I do think those are great sequences. And it's worth pointing out again, as we did with um, the fight in the elevator with Peter Franks in Diamonds Are Forever, there's no score at all in those action sequences. There's no music whatsoever, which really brings out that sense of death-defying suspense in them. Uh, shall we talk a bit about the, uh, the biggest character in the film, who we haven't mentioned, Max the Parrot. Now, apparently, uh, Roger Moore thought that uh, th that was too silly, the way that uh, the parrot gives them the clue. But personally, I quite like that, actually. It is a bit silly. It is a bit naff. But at the same time, it's just believable that there might be a parrot on the ship that does copy the words of the baddies. So I quite like that, but I know that I, I might meet some resistance. It gives light relief, I'll give you that, but do you not think it's sort of, if the uh, the henchman had been chatting about anything else and he picked that up, it would have been a complete dead end for Bond? Yeah, I just think it's not as silly as Connery in Diamonds Are Forever just looking on the map and then, bah! <laughs> Yeah, I, I do agree. It, it's a complete obvious deus ex machina. Um, and it's Chekhov's gun again, isn't it? You know from the off, as soon as you see a parrot in a film, 
What do we know about parrots? They mimic what people say. You almost can tell if you're thinking about what might happen that the parrot will come in handy in some point. I think it works actually because it only gives half the story. The very next scene is, is Q telling Bond, do you know how many St. Cyril's monasteries there are in Greece? Uh, and of course, it's up to the actual biggest character in the film, Columbo, uh, to, to provide the knowledge which he has of which St. Cyril's it actually is. I think this is one of the great Bond allies. I think he's absolutely up there with Kerim Bey in From Russia With Love, Tiger Tanaka in You Only Live Twice. He is so ultra charismatic and I wish he was just in more of the film. I, I wish we'd got round to him sooner. And I love actually that he's not in any sense a good guy. He is absolutely a criminal, but he is 100% a criminal of honour. And in that one scene when he and Bond are introduced to each other, Bond realises that so quickly and is so fast to trust him over Christatos, who of course had been presenting himself as, as a suave gentleman, you know, and someone to be trusted. But Bond sees immediately through one and sees the reality of the other, even though they're technically on opposite sides of the law. Yeah, I've got a lot of affection for Columbo as well. He's kind of reminiscent of the, uh, the Draco character, I thought in uh, On Her Majesty's as the, the bad guy who's still on Bond's side. I mean, surprising that Roger doesn't say, have you got a, have you got a daughter? <laughs> he almost has a Draco moment, actually, doesn't he, when he punches the guy in the face for no reason when they've tied him up in um, the, uh, the lift up to the monastery. Uh, I think the whole backstory as well with him and Christatos is fantastic. And we've talked a bit about the, the deceptiveness and the duplicity of Christatos mimicking the fact that the Cold War is playing a, a primal role in the story again, but also the fact both of them have this shared backstory going back to World War II and Greece in World War II. They make such a great use of that Greek location and it being this rogues gallery and, and hotspot of criminality, but that being a criminal or being good is less interesting and appropriate than being honourable or not honourable. Okay, so uh, this film marked a deliberate shift away from gadgets, but uh, still quite a lot of car action. So let's go over to Phil for a roundup of the cars and gadgets. You're not thinking that. I sure am, boy. Ever heard of Evil Knievel? Yes, thank you very much, Martin. So, obviously, in this issue of uh, the Bond franchise with Fleer Eyes Only, as we've already mentioned, not so much of a focus on the sort of more outlandish gadgets or cars, but there is a main focus on the return of the Lotus Esprit. Um, also, runs to the early 80s now, so the now Esprit S2 has become part of the franchise, and we'll see it um, a little bit again moving forwards. Interestingly, in the early 80s, obviously, most car manufacturers were going kind of turbocharging mad. So it kind of doesn't make any surprise that Lotus went the same way. And obviously, the producers were still happy for them to have that partnership where they used the Esprit as kind of Bond's main vehicle to travel around in. With this film, though, obviously, most people remember it for one car in particular, and that, of course, is Melina Havelock's Citroen 2CV which was used heavily in the, um, the opening car chase. We see it pursued by the villains in their Peugeot 504s. So they were traveling through the, um, through the vineyards, obviously through those winding roads to try and make their escape. 
interestingly enough, obviously the two CV is not kind of built for speed or maneuverability, let's say. So the vehicle that was used in the film was heavily modified. So the suspension was heavily modified. It had a full roll cage uh, fitted with obviously racing seats for the stuntmen to be able to use it when they did the rolls and obviously through the hedgerows. Moving on to some of the other vehicles of note and for your eyes only. So when we see the ski chase through the ski resorts, the villains are using Yamaha XT500 bikes. These are interesting because they're probably the only ones that have actually got gadgets fitted to them. We see them with the front firing machine guns, which aim at Bond and just miss him. And of course, Locke is the other one that's quite prominent with his vehicles. Obviously, we see him in the super buggy, the 1977 GP super buggy to kill Liesel. So that's a really quick look at the cars. Just to go into the gadgets that we use. So kind of the main one that we, we've not really talked about a huge amount is the actual ATAC itself. So it's, it's classed as an automatic targeting attack communicator. So this was used to guide missiles into their targets. Interesting to note that obviously it had the, the weaponized system where it could also have a self-destruct mode, which the sailors aren't able to instigate before the ship sinks. Whether or not that was based on anything in real life is unclear. The item that was based on a real device was the 3D identigraph that we've already touched upon to, that identified Locke earlier on in the film. Now, this was based between the UK photo fit system and the US identikit systems of the 1970s. So they are very primitive versions of the type of equipment you see on Crime Watch or on sort of American investigative shows. So even to this day, the US identikit system is still in use, albeit a much more advanced system. Just to go to the underwater gadgets as well, they were designed by a nautical engineer called Graham Hawkes. They were the Neptune submarine, which obviously Bond and Molina used to investigate the sunken ship, and the Mantis micro-sub, which was obviously what the villain used to try and stop Bond and Molina from escaping. So they were both designed by Graham Hawkes, and interestingly, when he submitted them to the production team, he was actually the one that was initially controlling the Mantis in that, in that filming sequence. Unfortunately, he actually followed the director's instructions to the letter where he had to dive quite steeply to, to attack the Neptune. And he inadvertently almost killed the stuntman who was debutizing for Roger Moore at the time because he went in a little bit too steep and basically destroyed part of the set that he wasn't supposed to. But it was only because he was basically following orders to, to go in at quite a steep angle to try and attack. But that's just a very quick summary of kind of the gadgets and the devices that were used in the film. Okay, thank you very much, Phil. Maybe a shame that the laser gun doesn't return. That would have been a lot easier mission for Bond, wouldn't it? Yeah, as we've said before, how many times would that laser gun just come really in handy? He wouldn't even have had to kick Locke's car off the cliff. He'd have had a laser gun or indeed run after it that far. He could have just fired it uh, off into the distance as uh, he drove away. Yeah, all the exercise, running up the hill, mountaineering to shoot the laser. Here's a question, though. Would it have worked underwater? Because he would have been in a bit of trouble in the Neptune. I think if it works in the vacuum of space, it works underwater. Okay, very good. So uh, we'll move on now to our next segment. This film, not based on a novel, but the, the series of short stories by Fleming. So let's take a look at the similarities and differences in By the Book 007. Why don't you acquaint yourself with manuals? You'll be able to shoot through that in a couple of hours. Just took a few seconds, Q. Thank you very much, Martin. So yes, For Your Eyes Only is a collection of five 
five short stories which begin as the plots of uh, episodes in a James Bond TV series Fleming was planning, but which never came to fruition. Uh, and conveniently, uh, the eighth book, this one, actually separates the first seven novels in which Bond is primarily uh, up against Smirsch with the later series of the novels uh, in which he is up against Spectre. So we are adapting, actually, and adapting fairly faithfully two of the short stories in this collection for this film. We'll start with the title story, For Your Eyes Only, which uh, involves the death of the Havelocks, the murder of the two Havelocks again. Not because they're after an ATAC machine uh, to salvage it, but in the book, and in the short story rather, because they are refusing to sell their estate in Jamaica to an ex-Gestapo officer called Von Hammerstein. And again, it's Gonzalo, who in the short story is the head of Cuba's counterintelligence, who pulls the trigger on them. Now, in the short story, M is, in fact, the best man at uh, the Havelock's wedding and so is deeply affected and uh, feels a lot of grief for this having happened, which is why Bond is sent to investigate and to take very specifically revenge. From there on, we're not going to Greece. Uh, we're actually going to Echo Lake in Vermont, in which Von Hammerstein, uh, the Gestapo officer, is killed as Gonzalo is in the film, i.e. he's about to go off a diving board and then a bow and arrow hits him in the back fired by the Havelock's daughter, who in the short story is called Judy. Presumably the name changed to Melina in the film for the reasons Martin explained earlier. In Greek, it means honey. Uh, and then in a shootout, it's Bond who kills Gonzalo and uh, two other Cuban hitmen. Uh, and of course, giving Judy the classic spiel to stay out of uh, revenge and to leave dangerous, morally corrosive work of intelligence to the people who work in it. The other short story we adapt, and again very faithfully, is a short story called Reseco. The title's never, of course, been used. Uh, and this is the part which takes place in the drug smuggling uh, world of Italy. And it's the same Christatos Colombo dynamic and relationship as in the film. We start out believing that Christatos is our contact and our way into solving Colombo's uh, activities in the area. Uh, of course, Bond then meets Columbo. There's no Countess Liesel in the short story, but Columbo, in fact, convinces him through a raid on a Christatos ship and warehouse that he is, in fact, the drug kingpin in the area. Uh, and Christatos is not uh, killed as Locke is in the film. Uh, his car kicked over the side of a cliff, but he is shot whilst driving away and trying to escape from the gunfight. So principally, the chief uh, invention, I guess, of the screenwriters is the ATAC computer, the thing that ties these two short stories into uh, a larger feature-length screenplay. And the ATAC is a classic Bond example of using what Hitchcock called the MacGuffin. It's an item which powers the plot and which all the characters care about getting, but which is actually just an excuse for us, the audience, to enjoy all the action sequences and everything surrounding this item. We've seen it before, of course, in the microfilm, uh, in the early scenes of The Spy Who Loved me and uh, originally the Lecter decoding machine in From Russia with Blood, but it recurs throughout the Bond films. The other two things to quickly mention, we mentioned this when we covered uh, Live and Let Die, but the keel hauling sequence is the finale of the second Bond novel, Live and Let Die. In that instance, uh, it ends with a limpet mine blasting Mr. Big into the Jamaican seas where he is consumed by sharks. And actually, the identigraph machine first appears in the novel Goldfinger, one book before this, where it is called the Identicast and is used for Bond to confirm the identity of the canasta cheat who murdered Jill Masterson, i.e. Goldfinger himself. Okay, thank you very much, Adam. Uh, I was going to ask, do you think do you think it makes a difference that this one isn't based on an actual novel? Does it make much difference that we're taking elements from different stories? 
Yes and well, yes and no, really. Of course, it's different in that we don't have um, an overarching storyline to to base everything on, and uh, the screenwriters are having to do an awful lot of work to actually take those two stories, which, as I say, they adapt reasonably faithfully, and and then spin it off into something that resembles, you know, a feature length story, and that's why they had to invent the ATAC. But at the same time, they've been inventing the stories themselves for a while now. But I don't think it affects things because they're using the short stories to harness certain elements and characters and elements of the story rather than, you know, create your grand narrative, which you then hang all the action sequences on. Okay, very good. So uh, we'll move on now to uh, my segment, which is that's not okay anymore. So for this film, we enter the 1980s. So of course we have to get Maggie Thatcher in there. Uh, so that one is probably the most political that this Bond film or indeed any Bond film gets. Uh, and we could say arguably that the Bond films are better when they're taking, when they're using real political issues and using them for their own purpose, modifying aspects of real life. But one might argue that they've gone a little bit too far taking a, a real politician and using an impressionist at the end of the film, and even the impression of, uh, of Dennis Thatcher as well. Uh, but apart from that, I'm not sure, in terms of non-PC areas, we don't really get much. We could mention B.B. Dahl again, but that scene, as we, as we mentioned in our chat, is very self-aware. It knows what it's doing with that character and, uh, and Bond, his relationship with her, whilst the scene is cringeworthy, um, it doesn't, thankfully, doesn't go any further than uh, than that. Uh, in terms of uh, positive things for the film, politically, we could say that it does feature the first transsexual Bond woman, the actor Caroline Cossey, in Gonzalez's pool party. So we could say that that's a progression for the Bond franchise being more inclusive. And we could also mention this film is one of the first films, apparently, to use the word Caucasian the politically correct term for a white person when Bond is using the identigraph and describing Locke to, uh, to Q. So perhaps slightly more progressive in terms of political notions. So uh, we'll move on now to Q branch. Your questions hopefully answered to your satisfaction. What did we have this week, Phil? Yes, we've had another really good response this week. Uh, of course, please do keep sending in your questions or your ideas for Q branch. So this week we had a couple of questions. One was from um, Danny Shepherd Flint, who wanted to know why there's so many of the sort of 50s, 60s and 70s films that rely so much on dubbing. And is that just something that was part of the era or was there another reason for it? I guess the reason for it is, um, we've talked a little bit with Melina, that the Bond women, and indeed a lot of the Bond characters, have an international flavour. He's, he's going across the world. And I guess there was always a sort of, toss-up between wanting to therefore cast actors from those countries or, or who represent those nationalities uh, in those roles who would have the, the more authentic look and culture about them. But of course, the trade-off is their English might not be perfect or might not be strong enough to, to do the role. So Gert Frober, of course, is dubbed uh, the man who played Goldfinger. Uh, so I guess it happens just because they, they really want to cast actors from the countries that Bond is visiting or, or have the right nationality and therefore the right look. And, and if the trade-off is that you need to therefore dub them in order that the dialogue is spoken in the way that they want the character to sound, then I guess that's, that's you know, the, the decision they made rather than just cast English or American actresses 
again and again and just have them put on dodgy accents, I guess. Okay, good stuff. Um, and the second question comes from uh, Steve Spring from Facebook. Basically, to all of us, how do we think that Eon will look to kind of attract new fans and a younger audience to the Bond franchise in the future, particularly when we consider that the DC films are probably not aimed at a younger audience and there's not really been much merchandise or video games for the Bond franchise in recent years. How do we think that the Bond franchise will move forwards in the next few years to, to bring new um, audiences in? I think that's quite a tough question. I think the short answer is that it probably won't do very well in attracting younger audiences. Uh, I hope, I mean, I wish that it would. Uh, I personally would like to, a new James Bond video game, and that certainly would attract a younger audience, I think. But uh, I'm not sure about how it can attract a larger audience. Um, do you think it'll be always be one for the fans? I don't necessarily think that. I mean, let's not forget the last two Bond films are, are still two of the highest grossing films of all time at the, the UK box office. I think there's only Star Wars The Force Awakens, which has grossed more than either of them. The question for me, I mean, there's, there's two sides to this. I mean, first is how do you appeal to younger audiences in the era when superheroes and high fantasy is as popular as it is? Star Wars, of course, has had a renaissance recently. What I would say about those is I, I think they're fleeting. Um, I think you see these trends come and go generally. And I think superhero cinema, I don't think it's got the longevity. And then that leads me on to the second point, which is that Bond has always reinvented itself with the times. And that is how it has stayed relevant. This genre should have died in the 60s. It's a 1960s film genre, but it stayed relevant by reinventing. And that's how it will appeal to new audiences. Whether those new audiences will always be younger audiences. I mean, we were all, you know, pretty young when we got into the series. I don't know if that will necessarily be the case. I think they'll probably just look to be adult or more adult action movies, more prestige blockbusters in an era where younger audiences are catered for by other films. Okay, thanks, guys. So one just really quick question as well. This actually came from a Twitter challenge. So basically, it's a really quick one. What is your favourite James Bond title? And I'll give you a hint. For me, it's The Living Daylights. Why? Why is it The Living Daylights? What do you, what do, what do, why do you think that's so good? Because I just love the fact that they decided to call it that. And I, I just think that it's a really brilliant setup for the film. And it also leads neatly into the way that it's delivered in the film. We've often noticed that the fact that the title has to be shoehorned into the dialogue at some point in every film. And at least in this one, it's it's the more easier segue to be able to suggest that from uh, from Bond's point of view. I think for me, actually, thinking of the ones that the producers and the writers have had to invent for themselves, i.e. when they ran out of the ones Fleming gave them, uh, I always think that's just an impossible task. I wouldn't know where to come up with thinking of a Bond title. And on that level, I've always liked The World Is Not Enough. Because, of course, it is from the Fleming. It is from the, the Bond family motto. And I thought that was a really clever magpieing of quite a dramatic-sounding title uh, and repurposing it after they'd run out of what Fleming actually gave them. I think I'd probably go with Goldeneye, just because of what it represents now, because Goldeneye comes from Fleming's estate, but now it represents one of the best, in my opinion, Bond films. And going back to the video games, it represents one of the uh, the iconic video games that people remember Bond for. Uh, so yeah, I'd go Goldeneye. Or controversially, I do quite like the name Quantum of Solace, and I wish they'd uh, done a better film for it. Ooh, controversial. Not many people like the title Quantum of Solace, even those who like the film. Well, I guess I'm the, the opposite then. I hate the film, but like the, uh, like the title. 
Okay, thanks, guys. So that was uh, this week's Q branch. So please do keep sending in your um, your questions and your content ideas, and we will uh, also try to fit them into the podcast each week. So uh, we move on to our final segment, which is the quiz. No, 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 stop getting Bond wrong! Stop getting Bond wrong! So it's over to Phil. What do you have for us? Surely not car engines, no. (laughs) Please, no. You'll be delighted to hear, Martin, that no, I don't have another round of mine is bigger than yours. That is very much dead in the water. Instead, what we're going to go for this week, it's another buzzer round, similar to last time. And this week, it's all going back to whose line is it anyway? So it's a simple shootout. The first person to five correct answers wins. All you have to do is tell me the character that said this line. So you don't even have to tell me the actor, just the character that said this line. I'm sure, so Martin, do you want? I'm sure they, do you want to be Blofeld going down the chimney? Can I be Maggie T? Well, really, Mr. Bond. <laughs> and Adam, who would you like to be? Oh, well, if he's being Margaret Thatcher, I've got to be Max the Parrot. That's fair enough. So we've got Margaret Thatcher versus Max the Parrot. Okay, so this is the first question. So I think he's attempting re-entry, sir. That was Adam. That was Adam quick on the buzzer. Oh, that's Q at the end of Moonraker. It is. So Adam gets off to a good start. So he's in the lead with one. So, question two, keeping the British end up, sir? Uh, that is James Bond himself at the end of The Spy Who Loved Me. It is. That's two for Adam now, so he only needs three more. So, question number three, you have shot your last bolt, Miss Havelock. Well, really, Mr Bond? <laughs> is that Locke? No, he doesn't say anything, does he? <laughs> no, it's not. No, it's not. Can I come in? Can I steal? Yeah. I think it's Christatos. It is Christatos, so that's three out of three for Adam. So, question four, you appear with the tedious inevitability of an unloved season. Well, really, Mr Bond? (laughs) That's Hugo Drex. It is. That's the first for Martin, so you're off the marks. Okay, so question number five, well, here's to us. Uh, I, I think it's. Uh, I think that's Jaws to his girlfriend. It is from Moonraker. That was Jaws in the closing scene. So that's another one to Adam. So on to question number six. We all make mistakes, Mister Bond. If you need a clue, I can give you the film. It was from the Spy Who Loved Me. Adam's there. Uh, I'll have to guess Anya Amasova then. It is correct, yep. So when they were in Cairo, that was the uh, the response from Anya to Bond. So Adam, with something of a whitewash with a 5-1 victory, it's your your round this week. So you get to play us out for the closing titles. Yeah, I'll let, I'll let Adam win there because I wanted to hear Max more. <laughs> We've had a lot of singing villains, but we haven't had any singing allies. So let's have Top Hole with From Fiddler on the Roof, If I Were a Rich Man. Okay, very good. So uh, we've come to the end of this week's episode. Thank you very much for joining us in the cubby hole. Do join us again next week, uh, where we'll take a look at the next James Bond film, which is... I've forgotten, which is Octopussy. <laughs> so, it's all right, we've done a lot of them. Yeah. <laughs>
in the meantime, do give us a like and follow on social media, Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. Hopefully we'll see you there. So uh, that's about it for this week. I've been Martin. I've been Adam. And I've been Phil. If I were a rich man, yabbidibbidibbidibbidibbidibbidibbidibbidibbidibbidibbidibbidibbidibbidibbidibbidibbidibbidibbidibbidibbidibbidibbidibbidibbidibbidibbidibbidibbidibbidibbidibbidibbid